Keeping Track, and you're listening to Molly Huddle, Alicia Montano, and Roisin McGettigan-Dumas. We want to highlight the important topics, inspiring stories, and amazing women in sport. We're three Olympians from two countries, two moms, and one current pro coming together to talk about issues we're passionate about in the sports world. And we care about the current and future landscape of women's sports. And this is just how we're keeping track. On episode 19, we sit down and talk Molly to Molly. We talked to fellow Saucony athlete, Notre Damer, future Olympian and newly minted marathoner, Molly Seidel. I want to give a side nod to Alicia, who joins us halfway through this episode. This is us working from home, and this is us working with newborns. She was feeding the baby while podcasting, and all I can say to that is, brava, Alicia, brava. We're into May, and we're still finishing up Olympic trials interviews, and hey, it's one of the last races that happened, so let's just keep digesting it. Molly talks to us about where in the world she is quarantining, why she wanted to be surrounded by family during this time, her expectations or lack thereof going into the trials, the media hype after the trials, how she overcame her injury history, and the issues she still deals with even as she is having an exciting breakthrough in the sport, and how she credits having a great support system for getting to this point. Thanks for keeping track. Okay, welcome back to Keeping Track, everybody. We have Roisin and Alicia here for our catch-up this week. How are you ladies doing? Great. Big hug for you guys. Um, we're, we're, we're here. We're alive. We are thriving. Um, yeah. Good. <laughs> thriving and surviving or both? <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit of both. Well, Alicia, you're like the definition of thriving. Can you tell us what two things you've unleashed this week that are creations of yours? So I have released my book, Feel Good Fitness. It's just yeah. fun workout challenges to inspire your fitness streak. Um, that is out. It is widely available now that it is May. Um, you can get your books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, from Bellow Press, which is my publisher, and at Target. Amazon is still... Um, making essential goods priorities. So you could be a little bit slower on Amazon. Um, and yeah, those are, that's the biggest piece of news with the book. I'm very excited about it. I am recording some quick little exercises so that I can share with everybody on social media, my Instagram, Alicia Montano, at Alicia Montano. And one of the, another very, very long project I've been working on is um, the nonprofit that is moving hashtag dream eternity from movement to impact. And Mother has just launched, or just announced, we would say announced, um, we have bigger plans and like the launch, the launch was really, um, we, we really had it set around the trials and supporting, you know, mother athletes at trials. And obviously that's not what's happening right now. So we just rolled it back a little bit to just pulling into as much support as possible for um, our athlete mothers, but this is not just supposed to be for athletes. This is going to be supporting um, women choice to choose career and motherhood. Um, oftentimes the mothers are missing in, in careers and people just assume that everybody just wants to have their child and not continue to pursue their career. That's just a choice that they made, but that's a societal choice. Oftentimes the choices are made for them because of limitations that are, um, bestowed upon the mom 
once she becomes pregnant and most often after she has her children. So we want to remember the moms, not just on Mother's Day, but every day um, and all of their amazingness and all of the incredible um, aspects that make a woman that happens to be a mother amazing. So do you feel that there's some structures still in place that just make it really hard for that to happen? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm working, you know, from a personal um, business, you know, to my own, my own personal small business, I would say, but it is, I I work for myself, right. In a lot of ways um, that has its limitations in itself, but I'm able to make a work structure that allows me to thrive. And I think, um, you know, and I'm also able to think, oh, if I were in an office setting, this would be absolutely impossible if I, but I'm able to get all of the work, if not more done in the way that I'm working. Um, If I was in an office setting, I can just only imagine having eyes scrutinizing the way that I need to work so that I can be um, Alicia Montano, you know, this career track and mother. Um, And then of course, for the athletes, you know, we, it took an outcry with uh, Dream Eternity for people to even know that the moms were missing because the moms were pushed out of the sport mm-hmm. um, or, you know, sponsors and, you know, companies who were supporting moms maybe once now saw them less valuable. And we just, you know, are here yeah. to say, you know, we are here. Mm-hmm. We are kicking ass. Please support us and allow us an opportunity to continue to thrive. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Versus like, you know, the structure, the status quo that was around just like, you know, oh, your contract is pulled or you're frozen or whatever, mm-hmm. um, which which you mentioned before, Alicia, it was very threatening experience. Like I have to run with this like idea that every my whole family is on my back right now. And if I don't perform like I'm it's gone, it's pulled. And like that is, you know, that's a that's an you know, we know racing uh, world class level is, is as tricky enough um, and physically, emotionally challenging enough to add that added stressor. It's just, yeah, anybody. I think something that's really interesting to note coming from, you know, uh, the professional runners perspective, and I can't speak for everyone, but uh, many of my friends that I know that are professional women athletes, um, it's the same thing with professional men athletes. You know, there's the the wags and you know that whole sort of club but it's like when we see a woman who is thriving in a athletic career track and her partner you know is supporting and you know doing a business that they can travel along and come with and Mm -hmm. um ultimately you know do the same thing our male athletes are able to do Mm -hmm. and they get celebrated for um and then if it's me who uh, is the professional athlete and my partner, um, is now moving towards, okay, I'm going to do the support role, but, uh, pick a career that I'm excited about, but one that I can come along and I can support these things, um, these, these triumphs with you. Cause ultimately one of the things that's really difficult to explain and help people understand about, um, professional running is it is a relatively isolating, um, career track I think you know us traveling you know Europe the world going to training camps for a period of time and not uh, having your partner be able to have a fluid um, business that can travel with you is can be pretty lonely and ultimately affect uh, 
mental health, I think. From I mean, we don't want, as everybody's seeing right now, we don't want to be alone. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> you know, if we have it our partners, great. we don't want to be away from them for a really long period of time, especially yeah. when, um, you know, this career takes a lot of mental energy anyway. So, yeah, I don't know, a little we're tangent there. But... Yeah, we're social beings and like mm-hmm. it's important to have that support in, you know, in sort of support and even the introverts yeah. are missing their <laughs> social yeah. relationship moment. It's not about introvert, extrovert. It's, yeah. it's about that core support and having those people in your daily life. So important. Right. Right. Yeah. And I just wanted to say, I think the ease of that, the ease of it for our men to do a, the same career I would be doing and to have a family and keep doing it the way that they're doing it is like, you know, they're fully supported, but to show it on the other side, this is what we need. And I don't want for our moms to feel like we can't ask for what we need. Cause oftentimes mm-hmm. it's just turned into being like, oh, I don't want to show that I'm even a mom. So that I don't think like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be a burden. I'm going to be, you know, I'm not serious. Mm-hmm. about my career and yeah and look at just changes made in a year that you got you know that things have really changed like Alex Morgan for something is just signed yeah. a massive contract with Nike when she was pregnant was that from massive. the Glamour article because I didn't see that I, I don't know I thought it was okay. it came out like a few weeks ago um okay I'd love I love talking like I'm not making rumors up but I thought she yeah. signed a massive contract while she's pregnant and yeah, like, let's fact check. But yeah, let's fact check that. We hope it's true, though. We hope we that's hope now. We hope it's now a perk, and it shows the wholeness and extra um, areas of relatability in a female athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, that's awesome. Great job, Alicia. Great job, Molly Dickens, your partner in crime there. Woo-woo. And um, I love it. Support us at annmother.org. Yes. yes, there's two ways to support it. you. Is that necklace a way to support Ann Mother via yes. Erica Sarah? Yeah. Let's talk yep. about that. Yes, it's um, an ampersand. It's like and, but if you can look closely, that's like a mother holding oh, a baby. Oh, is wearing oh, a really hey, pretty. I didn't notice that. That's beautiful. Is that she's wearing a um, is it silver silver necklace made by Erica Sarah Jewelry. We are all fans of hers. She's a um, cool like entrepreneur in the jewelry running space and she is making a and mother logoed necklace where I'm guessing the proceeds go to the and mother nonprofit and I I would also like to support this launch because I really love what you guys are doing um this is something relevant to me this is something relevant to any ambitious career-oriented female that wants also to have a family life and someday (laughs) so um, for the month of May, we want to give the proceeds for our Keeping Track t-shirts to and Mother. Um, you guys did a great job. We raised $500 for the food banks last month. Mm. So let's try and do that again for the month of May. And what else about May is important, Roisin? <laughs> um, so May is um, Mental Health Awareness Month. And um, we actually go kind of dive into mental health in the ne- this episode that we're bringing in today, Molly Seidel. She talks about her own struggles, um, and I really think um, she does a great job talking about how important, you know, her mental health has been and how it's like it's this ongoing thing, um, something she struggled with in college, really affected her. And she's talking about it now and gaining awareness. And I think she does a really good job being like very authentic, very vulnerable and open up about her struggles and just showing what it's like to live with mental health issues. And um, we really appreciate her doing that. Um, Yeah. 
And what I loved about the interview, it kind of ties in. Um, when we talked to Holly Thorpe last week, she mentioned um, stories of athletes who are in the middle of these struggles are really important and relevant. And I feel like Molly is in the middle of this. Right. It's not gone. It's probably not ever going to be like totally gone away, but she deals with her issues while she's currently kind of having this breakout season. And so I think that's really cool to see. It makes it a powerful um, yep. story that that's really engaging and really important for young athletes to see. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the New York Times has a nice article a few weeks ago or recently, I don't know, a few days ago, um, about some athletes who are talking about eating disorders in different sports, not just running, um, and how this kind of um, you know, lack of structure in their lives, lack of control with, you know, lack of being able to train, compete, things like that, are really kind of adding challenges to people who have struggled. Um, so if you are one of those people who are, are struggling during this time, I really recommend you reach out to a professional um, and seek help and don't feel that there's something wrong with you. Um, get the support you need, get the help you need. Very cool. Another issue that we think we want to give a lot more attention to, a lot more uh, weight and time and discussion um, and vision for a future is the um, is the issue of racism and um, discrimination that many of our BIPOC athletes and runners and people feel every day. And we will be diving into this issue in a lot bigger detail. Um, what do you guys want to mention anything on that right now? Yeah, just to, again, with it being Mental Health Awareness Month, um, I think it's really important that we do talk about the double consciousness that our that I face, as well as my my peeps, <laughs> um, my my people of color, we face every single day in industries, in the public. And now as people are recognizing, we face this within running, um, the running community. And I really think that this is a really good time to not, uh, to call out action. You know, we can now recognize the more and more these, th these issues come out, we recognize like this isn't an isolated incident. They're not isolated incidences. Um, this is a part of the history of America and racism doesn't just exist here um, and yeah we really need to focus on our mental health and recognize that all of these spaces that you know privileged people get to be in without fear of life um, we want to be in there too and it ultimately does create um, a mental strain on us um, and now for myself as a runner um, I think the veil has been lifted for a lot of people to see it's here too Running, you know, people like to say running is a place where we're all free and everybody gets to do it. It's not necessarily true. And I think that this, um, uh, the video that had come out with Ahmad Arbery really is showing the world that this is not necessarily true for everyone. So um, I look forward to diving into this um, on a much deeper scale. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned earlier, Alicia, um, of course, the awareness is a start, but you want to see more than a hashtag. You want to see action. And so we'll dedicate more time and conversation to, um, to, to discussions around actions, what, should, what you can do, how you can change your thinking, how you can help change this. Um, and going forward, we have a great episode coming up with 
Molly Seidel. We have a cool guest today, another Molly, Molly Seidel, who you recently know from making the U.S. Olympic team at the marathon trials about a month ago now. Um, And Molly is multiple-time NCAA champion uh, at the University of Notre Dame, a place I also know well, and a fellow Saucony athlete. So Molly, thanks for... Thanks for tuning in. Can you tell us where you're calling from and kind of what's going on there now? Yeah, I am calling from Wisconsin right now. I'm back with uh, back with my parents and my sister here. I, I usually live in Boston with my sister, but um, we're we're kind of holing up here for a little bit, and it's a little bit more rural. Can kind of get away from the the craziness of the big city right now. So it's it's really nice. Very good running, and uh, it's nice being with my family in kind of these crazy times. Yeah. Did you did did you go straight out there like as soon as the whole kind of COVID nineteen was taken over? No, so I actually had back been back in Boston for for quite a while. I've only been back here for maybe like ten days or so at this point. Oh. Um, basically, my sister was back here in Wisconsin, so I was all alone in my apartment in Boston doing like full kind of quarantine, and it was really hard. It's I don't think I gave enough credence to just like how hard it is when you have like no social interaction. So um, I, I figured it was probably a little bit better for my, my mental state coming back and being with family and, and having people around. And it has been really, really nice. Yeah. Isolation is not how we're designed, right? As humans. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I, it's just so crazy going from like, yeah, usually in Boston, the thing I love about it is there's so many people around. I'm constantly running with people. All my friends live close to us. And then it's like 100 to zero. It's like you can't see anyone except over Zoom calls then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the barista in Boston. So was that closed down as well? Or is that was that just pre-trial life? <laughs> yeah, so that had been, um, I mean, that was basically I, I am a like a full-time pro runner for Saucony as Molly said but um because Boston is a super expensive place to live um I had like kind of this side hustle of working in a cafe down the street from us um I had uh, not I had taken kind of a leave of absence but being out in Flagstaff altitude training before the trials but um had been talking with my boss and was fully planning on coming back to work and then Right when I got back, that was kind of when the world went crazy. And the the cafe, Tate, is still open, but they're on kind of a skeleton crew right now. So basically, it's half the kitchen staff, um, the manager, and then the most senior barista, which is not me. Um, so, And then basically the rest of the the staff there, we've been... Um, they they say we're furloughed technically, but it's pretty much we're we're basically fired at this point, which which is sad. Like texting a lot of my coworkers, it's it's hard. Um, but you know everybody's kind of just getting through. Um, I don't know when things open back up if I'll go back to work there or not. But yeah, we'll see. I'm hoping for the sake of most of my coworkers that things kind of normalize sooner rather than later. Yeah. yeah. And Molly, with the barista story, I know you you mentioned it got blown a little out of proportion after oh my the trial. God, yeah. <laughs> you are primarily a professional runner. You know, you're high school champion, NCAA champion, and now Olympian. But um, can you talk about the barista thing? Do you think you'll keep doing it? And does it does it allow you to kind of 
switch off running mode and like help you feel more balanced in any way? Or is it strictly like a means to an end? Do you need a little extra cash? Like, can you talk about that? Cause you know, I could see a world where baristaing is kind of fun. Like I like mm-hmm. coffee. I don't know if it's yeah. or distracting, but yeah, uh, no, no, that's, that's exactly it is like, obviously it's nice having a little bit of extra income, especially because I was injured for so long and wasn't able to like make any money off of like race winnings or something. But the kind of the main reason that I do it is I just like being able to have something to do during the day. I'm kind of a, um, I know I can be a little bit hyperactive and the pro runner lifestyle kind of, it can be a little hard sometimes like you do your run and then you have nothing to do the, the rest of the day. And I really liked being able to have that, that space completely separate from running where I could go in my coworkers had no idea what pro running was. Most of them are, are either students at the local um, Berkeley College of Music or just like they did not understand what I did. And it was really nice, like um, kind of just getting to be a normal, like a, yeah, like a normal person where people are relying on you, but don't, don't care that you're a pro runner or whatnot. And um, Mm -hmm. I think afterwards I would like to still have something like that in my life, whether it's, I've always had a dream of opening my own coffee place. I've got a, an old 1966 Airstream trailer that I restored. And Ooh. my big dream is doing a mobile coffee shop out of that. So we'll see. Ooh, that <laughs> would be so cool. <laughs> they are yeah, so cool. I need to talk to Des Linden about uh, maybe I can sell her coffee out of it. <laughs> nice. I'll bake your bread for you. You guys can okay. have bread too. Okay. <laughs> Teach me how you get your sourdough so perfect because mine always just turns out sad, <laughs> like a sad little brick. And I'm so jealous of you sourdough baking well now's a good time to do it everyone's locked away baking right now (laughs) molly nurtures her her sourdough babies a lot so (laughs) you're ready to put in a lot of hours (laughs) you'll get it right probably guard your um what is it your your sourdough culture like the (laughs) like a small child yeah Yeah. if i give you a piece of the culture it means i trust you because i've given it to some people (laughs) and they let it die not naming any names but oh no you basically have to get a baby carrier for it and take it wherever (laughs) you go so just a warning if you take that on (laughs) but that is it's a fun escape to do things like that like um the the professional running world can be really high pressure it can be high pressure and I think it's good to kind of like Roisin I don't know if you remember our early days of trying to add in some drills and (laughs) supplementary stuff to the running workouts back in was it 2008 we were doing that or 2010 yeah and we just we see we got a glimpse of how if you're not careful your whole day can be working out um okay that is like what (laughs) it what it turned into for me like before I had the the barista job I would just find ways to like I don't know like keep doing like especially after surgery keep doing like PT stuff or just cross train too much and Mm -hmm. all this and at a certain point I need to just be like nope you know what I'm done go do something different yeah and like compartmentalize your running into like this is part of the day and that's it. Yeah. Or even like I would, I would have the problem of doing like too many shakeouts or something. And it's kind of nice sometimes like you have an eight hour shift at the coffee shop and you get done at nine 30 at night. And it's like, no, I can't go out and like run again now. So yeah, yeah, it's a nice way of like finding a little bit of balance in a lifestyle that is definitely not balanced a lot of the time. 
Mm -hmm. And that matches your personality. Like you said, you can kind of be someone who's very energetic and nonstop. And like, you find that that's the best way for you to like, some people might get tired at the coffee shop for you. It like forces you to rest or like recharge. Energizes. Yeah. 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 So that's that kind of probably hits a few things, right? Stops you from like overdoing it with all the little, all those little half percent of things that like after a while, diminishing returns, you hit that kind of diminishing returns. And then, the social piece of you know getting out of your own head and just like connecting with community and I'm sure that's fun as well Mm -hmm. yeah well and it's like it's fun being able to just like yeah like there's tons of people that come in and like you're constantly like seeing new people meeting new people and trying out new things I the main problem is I like drink way too much coffee when I'm on shift like I would like finish a shift at like nine and be like ah like can't fall asleep and and it is hard you're on your feet for hours at a time I would have to do like insoles and shoes compression socks but I feel like I have friends who are like nurses or something so I feel like I can't really complain yeah pros and cons of that so did you ever get to go back after your big celebrity breakthrough viral moment at the marathon and everything did you ever get to go back and do a shift and like no I didn't get to do a a shift but truthfully like nobody there like knows what pro running is I guess or like so I don't truthfully I don't think most of my coworkers even like knew uh, about the whole Olympic trials thing yeah, which yeah. is I almost kind of prefer that yeah um yeah yeah it, it's funny whenever I would try to like explain it to them what like my normal job was they'd just be like how is that like a thing and so <laughs> I was like <laughs> yeah so trying to explain it to like people who their whole lives are music and uh, yeah. or like they're in school to like try and be like a concert pianist or something it's like trying to explain like no my job is literally just running all the time they're like ew that's gross <laughs> well can we talk about sort of the lack of exposure with um like professional running like that's a common conversation to have to explain how you (laughs) justify being a professional runner but also like that the trials race in particular the coverage wasn't great um, especially of the women's side Mm -hmm. so maybe we can dive into the race a little bit we talked to Sally and we talked to Alphine and we didn't actually get to much of the race so I feel like it'd be cool Mm -hmm. to kind of like get get track nerdy with Roisin and Alicia (laughs) and (laughs) oh I I, you and I can kind of fill in fill in the details so Molly okay I'll set it up I know everyone already knows this but you this was your first marathon um Mm -hmm. I actually remember when we did that little donut run back in I don't know October maybe or in the fall um you were saying you were going to run Houston marathon um and then you ran that half that qualified you for the trials and you switched your plan to the trials so this was kind of a low pressure or 100% pressure situation depending on how you looked at it so can you kind of take us through the race a little bit or what was going through your head at various points or just anything that you thought of that day yeah it was it was such a like weird in a good way type of experience because it was like there was so little expectation I had going into that race because like for one I was the most nervous about just not even knowing what the race was going to feel like. Like in my head, I basically thought that it was going to feel like how a road 5k or 10k feels, but just for like 26 miles. And I was terrified. Um, And my coach, John Green, keeps saying like, no, no, it'll feel different. It'll feel different. You'll like actually feel like pretty okay for the first half. And I'm like, no, I'm just going to be redlining the whole time. It's going to be horrible. I'm going to drop out like all this stuff. Um, But then 
I also was like weirdly at peace with it of just like, you know what? It's going to be what it's going to be. It's my first one. I like my main goal going in was to kind of get experience for 2024 when I felt like I probably had a little bit more legitimate of a shot um, making it. And just with the level of athletes that were in that race, like I feel like every time I looked at like a, a preview of what the race was going to be, it was like, I like kept remembering like five new women who are like Olympians and like had run like sub 225 in the marathon. And I'm just like, Oh my God, this is going to be insane. So I think I had mentally hyped myself up for it to be the absolute worst case scenario of like just dying from the get go and not being able to hold on. So once I kind of got into it and found 18 miles in, I was feeling pretty okay. I was pleasantly surprised, but yeah, it was, such a weird day in so many ways, just from the course, the weather, how the race played out. It was, it was crazy. And I know you can speak to that as well. It was just Mm -hmm. a really weird race. Yeah. The marathon is so like that. Like I learned that even before I started when I was watching um, our training, Ro and I's training partner, Kim Smith, dive into the marathon world because she was the first one in our group to do it. And we would look at the start list for like the New York marathon or the Boston marathon. Um, She would see who's in there like three months out or two months out. And we'd be like, oh my God, you're going to finish like 20th Kim. Like this list is crazy. And then you realize on the, on the start line on the day, you have people that either don't show up or there's like 10 people who you shouldn't be on paper, but they've got injuries or they're sick or they don't feel like the marathon is full of those variables. And so it's kind of, it's daunting, but it's like, there's kind of this eternal hope that like, Hey, if it's my day, like anything could happen in the marathon. Mm -hmm. Well, and I feel like going into it, even like just the, just the, energy in Atlanta like on that on that start line was insane like I of all the marathons I've run that was definitely (laughs) the most like fun energy wise it just felt like there were so many people out even like heading to the start line I was like hanging with a couple of the um the amateur women my my sister works for Tracksmith and so I'm associated with um some of the people who are through that so it was some of these women who I would been like warming up a little bit with they were giving me some advice and we're like walking over to the line and I'm just like fully resigned to my fate at that point we're like dancing our way over to the line just like having fun with it and I feel like I've never had a race like that where I was just like I had so low of expectations for myself that I was just kind of like I'm just gonna try and like enjoy this for what the experience is and was just really having a lot of fun with it and like my whole family was there so many of my friends were there they had these huge like cut out faces of me then like at different points along the route it was just like it was so wild and I feel like it was very fun just getting to like be in the moment and like enjoy it for what it was which is like a really cool moment for for U.S. running yeah that whole eight mile loop was cheering the entire way it was loud like the entire way yeah like I road races aren't usually like that no like, it was crazy, it was crazy. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the lack of like low expectations and just kind of going in and like having fun in the moment just like appreciating it really like served you as a, in a way of like a buffer of like any kind of stress or like this expect you know pressure and things like that um that a lot of you know really top athletes have a hard time kind of saying okay this doesn't matter as much or this isn't the be all and end all or this day you know it's not do or die today um where you actually were in that place where you were like, okay, let me just see what I can do. Like I read some interview with you pre-race and it said like, 
you're not counting yourself out but there were, you weren't fully expecting yourself to do it as well and um, so that really kind of served you in that way that you weren't under that severe pressure that a lot of athletes were Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think going in, um, my coach and I had really talked about how like the obviously the goal at the trials is to get top three, it, like to to try and make it to go. But going in because it was my first one and I was trying to use it as kind of a learning experience. Mm-hmm. I went into it with the attitude of like, I'm going to fight for every spot that I can get. Like, I want to go in and race to the best of my ability and not focus on what place I'm in. And just like, because I think it can be hard when you're in the race and if you're not, and I've had this in races before, if I'm not in the position that I want to immediately like mentally be like, okay, like I've, I'm not where I want to be. I, mm-hmm. I can't do this. And so I wanted to kind of change that mental attitude that I've had in the past going into races and just be like, okay, even if I'm in 20th place, I'm going to fight for it and yeah. go because it's like, I don't know any better. Like yeah. <laughs> I might yeah. like, I might as well. And then you take that forward and use it to learn over the next couple of years. And Mm -hmm. um, then when it was like, as we're getting later in the race and I'm feeling good and I didn't want to, when we made our move, I guess, like it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision of like, okay, I want to make a move now. It was just a feeling of like, okay, I want to keep running the pace that I'm running and we're just going to see where it goes. And sure, I might be absolutely screwing myself over by trying to hold this pace right now with six miles to go. But I mean, yeah. I don't, yeah, I just want to keep going what I'm going and see what I can do. And then when Alphine took over and just having her kind of like positive energy there was such a huge factor for me. Yeah. And did you, was it true that I saw you guys talk about something about you guys had done some training runs together and so that felt, there was like some kind of normalcy around that and it just felt good to run together. Yeah, yeah. Alphine is someone who like I look up to enormously um, whenever I'm out in Flagstaff. I, I see her, I've run with her quite a bit. And um, even in the buildup, like I was like with her at Houston when like sitting next to her in the bus on the way over to the start line. And she's just like such a positive person. Like I've never met anyone who is probably just like as sweet as Alphine is. And it's really funny because obviously we aren't, we aren't like brand teammates, but those last six miles, it definitely felt like I was running with a teammate. Like she was like vocally encouraging me to stay with her. And I was really hurting at that point. Like I was probably in more pain than I've ever been in a race, but having her there, like urging me on, urging me to work with her and go with her. Like, I don't know if the race would have turned out how it did if I hadn't had her there like that. Wow, so that's so special. She's amazing. Our race, we had her on here a few weeks ago. She had us all like very inspired. Yeah. And she's, she's like that, whether it goes well or not. Like I remember in Houston, she kind of had a little bit of a um, cold or something and she was running with us and then we dropped her, but she was still saying, you know, like, let's do this. So thanks for helping. And um, then she turned it around for the trials. And yeah, Alphine is very genuinely like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like she's someone who deals with adversity like super well, like she's had her share of injuries. Like she had like a very serious sacral fracture, I believe. And like overcame that to run one of her best marathons. So it's like that someone who I look up to, like me having had my own like spouts of injuries and constantly comparing my training with other people who are able to manage more mileage, able to manage more workouts 
And when she's like, it doesn't matter. Like you just need to do the training that's meant for you. Like hearing that from someone like her is so important for, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a real role model for you in that way. Yeah, exactly. Can you talk Molly a little bit about your, um, the recent injury history with, I know you had, I don't know, was it one or two surgeries on the hip injury? It was, was, (laughs) it makes, yeah, it makes the um, triumph of the Olympic team that much sweeter because you were out for quite a while. So can you kind of talk about that and how um, the buildup, if you thought that was going in a good direction after those injuries, um, just kind of take us through that. And just even when you, sorry, just on that, Molly, when you do we kind of go into that a little bit, could you speak to somebody who maybe is in, have an injury right now and like, how did you stay mentally engaged with running or like what was that relationship like even just like not being able to run and as you identify as a professional runner and what's that like that side of it yeah so uh I'm not gonna lie the last two years have been really 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 hard um basically my fifth year of college um having dealt with eating disorder and like lower bone density as a result of that, I fully fractured the inferior pubic ramus of my pelvis, which is like the lowest part of your pelvis on the bottom. Um, Because I continued to train on it for several weeks, um, it separated two millimeters and never fused back together fully. So um, it was held together by scar tissue. And my first full year as a pro with Saucony from um, the summer of 2017 to the summer of 2018, I was effectively running on a broken hip, um, but it wasn't excruciatingly painful. And I'm also very dumb. So I kind of just pushed through it. Um, The summer of 2018, I realized that I uh, had to get surgery on it after getting an MRI to see if it had been rebroken. And uh, they basically went in, drilled out bone marrow from my iliac crest. So the top part of my hip and then inserted into the bottom. And as a result of that, I couldn't run for six months. And they gave me a 50-50 chance of like running competitively again, which was really, really, really hard to deal with. That was like mentally going through that um, because I feel like I really define myself by my running. Like I, I am like Molly the runner. And I was faced with the very real possibility of like, okay, like who are you if you don't have running anymore? So it was it was really hard. There were a lot of really dark moments in that. And um, I'm happy that I have a great support system around me and a, both like mentally and physically I had great PTs. Um, my family was super supportive and um, going into 2019, then hoping, OK, this stuff is finally fixed. Like I'm finally able to start building back up. I have to start from absolute ground zero, but I can maybe run again. And then that summer I, I rebroke it. So it was, or not fully rebroke. I, I had a stress reaction in it and it was really hard because I didn't know if it was going to work out. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up leaving the training group that I was in just because I think we were, I, I was really like struggling kind of with the training that we were doing. It kept kind of leading to recurring injuries. I wasn't in a great mental place with it. And when I started with John, who's my current coach, his whole attitude was, okay, we're going to get back to what you're doing in college. You really like mileage. Let's just do high mileage, moderate workouts, see where it leads. Um, and I ended up getting really strong, not super fast. I didn't know if it was necessarily the greatest training for 
5k 10k which I normally do but um it kind of got got me to the point hey let's try half marathons was and the half marathon went really well and after that he was like let's just let's just try the marathon trials you qualified for it it'll be a cool learning experience you're already doing basically marathon training and like I mean we don't know if you'll actually make it to the start line based on your past injury history but uh yeah I don't know it was just whether it's being in a little bit better mental place with with my coaching and training and doing kind of the stuff that fits my body type a little bit better it's uh just trying to focus on that like overall health and this kind of training for the marathon is what keeps me healthy so yeah it was less of a a concerted effort to like, okay, I want to do the marathon. It was more just let's do the type of stuff that's going to keep your hip, <laughs> keep your hip from breaking again. Um, which I've found Tough that track marathon training. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny that like track, track 10 K training, like Molly, I have so much respect for you for being able to like do like all of these hard freaking like 10 K like work that just like, it literally rips my hip apart every time I try to like build up for track 10 Ks. So that was actually the original goal is to try and do the Olympic trials 10 K, but rather than like doing traditional 10 K track training to do the marathon and then hope that I was just strong enough to be able to like, yeah, make my way to the team doing that. And yeah, it's just, it's so weird how life kind of works out, how you didn't think it was going to, like, I never thought that this was going to be the first team that I made. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot of athletes that are like that where the, the track stuff beats them up more than volume. Um, I know Emily Sisson talks about that sometimes, how she just feels like she gets stronger and stays healthier longer doing marathon stuff than she does doing track stuff. And I'm the opposite. I get a little beat up going long, but I can do track workouts. You know, I prefer them. I get fitter off them. So I think it's important to like work with what you are as an athlete mentally and physically, which it sounds like you have found that. Um, and I think that's when people start really unlocking their full potential. So, um, I think that's an important message to kind of be aware of that as an athlete. Yeah. Molly, I love what you talked about there, how like your goals kind of unfolded as, you know, where you were, you know, with your training. Okay, well, it's strong enough. Let's do that. And then let's do that. Right. So many times the opposite athletes have the goal first and then everything works back. So this like idea that like sometimes you actually it's really important to be where you are and like kind of, OK, what can I do this fall or what can I do now? And and let it unfold that way versus always knowing where the goal is. Yeah, I think it's like I I think it can be very difficult because like our sport is super goals driven. It's always <laughs> like, oh, write your goals down. What are you aiming for? What's <laughs> your next step going to be? And sometimes, especially with how much I've been injured and just with the setbacks I've had in my career, it's sometimes hard to like, I almost like try to avoid that now because I find that I almost get too, too overly focused on that. And that was my problem in 2016 coming out of college. Um, I was so overly focused on the Olympics. I, all I could think about was trying to make the Olympic team in the 5k. That was like my entire world. Mm. And I destroyed my body trying to do it. And so this time around, like, especially over the last couple of years, dealing with all this stuff and dealing with the knowledge of like, okay, like my body might never be able to manage the kind of training that I need to do to make an Olympic team. And I had a conversation with John about this. He's like, you have to decide like, if like, are you willing to sacrifice all of the time, all of the effort, all of the pain to do this 
and with the full knowledge that you might never like nothing, you might not achieve that goal of making the Olympic team. You might do all of this and never reach that. Are you willing Mm. to do this? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like I'm all in the, as cheesy as that sounds, like I kind of like the journey of going through all of the, this, like that's, I guess what's important to me. And it has always been my dream to be a pro runner. Like since I was a little kid, just like getting to do this, what matters. So that's why it was like, now it's like at the point where I had like, I feel like the race that I was like mentally just like, no, like I'm going into it. And like, I just want to enjoy it and do this for like the joy of like doing the sport. And that's when I make the team. It was just kind of like, and my mental state yeah. is so different from what it was in 2016, where it was like the only thing that mattered. Now it's like, no, like this is like, it's so important to me, but I have a much looser grip on, on all of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, I work in like sports psychology, a lot of times it kind of introduced exactly what you were talking about in this idea of like outcome goals versus process goals. Right. And it's like outcome is everything. Sometimes people think and it's like, no, 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 no. All the research says if you focus on the process, you will actually get to the outcome. Right. That's where, you know, that's where the joy is. That's where the the, the energy is that's where everything all the good stuff happens life right so this idea that okay it doesn't matter if sacrifice the whole process as long as I get the outcome and um, it doesn't always work either because you could get the outcome and the process was horrible that it just takes away from the enjoyment of a good outcome and then it sounds like the opposite you had to like no I have to enjoy the process because the outcome is definitely not guaranteed and yet mm-hmm that actually ended up happening that you end up achieving the outcome right yeah and it's like I guess I've had the experience then from college of like frankly like my last two NCAA championships like there was no joy in those like I really wasn't mentally well and like even now like I look at the rings from that and I see photos from it and I'm just like they mean nothing to me in a way as like, where does that sound? Just because like, I wasn't in a good place mentally. And I was so convinced that like, Oh, winning more championships is going to make me happy. It's going to like, make me like, yeah, like make me self-actualized and all this. And Mm -hmm. and it did like, I was just so mentally unwell that it doesn't achieving more doesn't bring you anything. And so now it's like, it's yeah. Like I know it sounds cheesy and corny of like, no, like, truthfully like making an Olympic team like yeah it's really it's like a huge dream of mine it's super fun but like I don't think any different of myself now than I did the day before the trials like I'm Mm. like just going out and being able to do it like truthfully the biggest thing for me that day was being able to have my family my friends there to like get to share all that with like that was super fun but like even after the trials it was a little bit overwhelming with all the media stuff everything and like all I wanted to do was get back to Boston and just like get back to my normal training <laughs> and like run with my friends and all of that. And like, mm-hmm. I'm back to the process. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Molly, if you don't mind talking a little bit about those college years, like I, I heard a really good podcast I'll recommend with you and Julia Hanlon, um, where you go into more detail about those years. But I think you're really an important spokesperson for like sort of um, someone who's come through the other side of um, the pitfalls that can happen to female athletes. And you're, I have to note this, I think this is a true stat. You are the only footlocker NCAA champion to become an Olympian. Um, And I think that's kind of a bad stat. I think so. Uh, Yeah, I was looking it up with, um, for this project I'm doing with Sarah Slattery. And I think you're the only uh, footlocker 
uh, and NCAA champion to go on to the Olympics. There might have been a marathoner back in the 80s, but I'm not sure. Um, oh, and so weird. Because I knew there was that whole silly, like, footlocker curse which you for were NCAA cross-country. Yeah. Well, right? But it points to, like, larger issues with how female athletes navigate, um, you know, mental health issues, issues with their bodies, issues with puberty, and um, kind of becoming their strongest self as a female athlete. And so um, I think it's cool that you've come out the other side. It's not that you haven't, you know, hit those pitfalls. It's that you've managed to, like, acknowledge them, change your outlook, get a better attitude, and just kind of make running something that empowers you rather than kind of... um, disempowers you so I think if if you want to talk a little bit about that journey and kind of um what you would tell maybe other athletes in your position because it's it's unfortunately really common I think that's what that stat proves you know our best young athletes don't become our best senior athletes yeah I think that like hearing that stat definitely like there it 100% speaks to the problems in the system that there I don't think is an appreciation for for women's sports in that way that like the, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this in the NCAA. I think there is a very negative trend to treat women, how men are treated in development. And I think men have a much more linear development than women do. It's kind of like from your freshman year of high school, all the way to your senior year of college, men can kind of expect to like gradually get better every single year. Whereas with female athletes, there are, it's much more of like, you go up, you go down, like as the female body is developing, um, various mental aspects. And I don't think right now that within the system, there is a respect for that. Um, when coming off of Foot Locker in high school, I was very highly recruited, got a scholarship to Notre Dame, and then proceeded to absolutely suck my first two years there. Like I, part of that is like, I was kind of coming into my body as a, as a woman rather than a high schooler, um, dealing with the the mental struggles, I was getting injured, just the stress of that. And I, I don't necessarily think there was a support system there to help me in that way like things changed a lot my my junior year when coach sparks came in um and I think he had a little bit better understanding of just the the mental aspect of it and how much that was playing a role for me specifically but yeah I think there's so many problems with the NCAA system I think it's really hard having the three seasons right in a row I don't think it's sustainable for a lot of athletes and I think it's really hard when girls are very good in high school and then they get to the college level and it's that next step up and there's not the the system to help them learn like, okay, like it's okay if you're not great right away. Like yeah. I think a lot of girls, they, they go from high school to winning every single meet to college where like, I mean, hell, I was almost last place my first year at nationals in cross country and I didn't make an NCAA outdoor meet until my junior year. Like I think a lot of women they they see that and then they're being told by their coaches like no this is a problem this is horrible whereas I think in a better a better more supportive world it would be like no like we need to give our young female athletes the space to not be great right away to develop to like learn how their bodies are changing and to mentally be ready for that and same thing then going from college to the pro level that brings its own set of challenges and it's like I 
I kind of struggled my first couple of years. Like I was dealing with injuries. I was dealing with stuff. And luckily I had a very good support network to get me through that. But Mm -hmm. I think me coming through and being able to win foot locker in high school and win NCAA championships and now make an Olympic team. I think that speaks less to me and more about just how good of a support system I had around me that was able to foster that and keep me going throughout the really tough times. Cause I don't know if I, if I hadn't had that, if I would be where I am right now. Mm-hmm. And you say support system, Molly, what are you talking about? Are you talking about coaching staff, parents, friends? Um... Yeah, all of that. I had like, my parents have been extremely supportive of me from a young age. Neither of them are runners, which mm-hmm. I think is almost better in the way because they, they haven't, pushed me like in a negative sense they're always highly supportive but they constantly remind me that they love me regardless of the fact Mm. that I'm a runner like my mom still couldn't tell you what my 10k time is or how far a 10k is frankly but um they're yeah they're highly supportive and then like coaching coach sparks my college coach was he's like my second dad like I still talk to him on basically like a bi-weekly basis and just like mentally very very attuned to like how much that matters for female athletes and Molly um, when you said you were like overly identified with run Molly the runner Molly the runner and you have these people in your life saying hey we care about you beyond beyond your running ability I mean that just sounds like exactly what somebody who you know fully identifies okay without running who am I this like crisis of what like who am I without that and yet you had the support in that moment to be like hey we still care about you no matter what running you do yeah I think that has been vital for me because I feel like the person who's hardest on me is myself a lot of the times and like I definitely remember at like one of my lowest moments um like right before I went into eating disorder treatment, um, having like a conversation with my mom where she was like, like, I don't care about Molly, the runner. I care about Molly, the person and like Molly, the person right now needs help. And like, so being able to have that of like, have parents who frankly didn't give a shit about like whether or not I needed to be running, like erasing within three months, they were like, no, like you need to like focus on your long-term health. Cause we care about you fully as a person like running is such a small thing about who you are as a full person I think that's really important for people who are like in a vulnerable state or like kids to hear that it's like you are more than just this sport that you're doing what you do yeah sure and I think it's important to show that once you that can look like sort of a letting go of running and that's when your best performances came you know when you acknowledge Mm -hmm. that and lived according to that so I think that's kind of proof that that's the way that is a healthy way to go about um, competitive sports or anything that you're trying to reach the top of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Did you notice, was it the success that like helped you, you know, kind of helped you evolve to that point where like running was more like an obsession of like, I have to do this. Yeah, I don't know if that's true. It, was it, would you consider it an obsession at that point when you were unwell or an eating disorder? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely think it's kind of like it starts to almost like spiral a bit. Like, you you achieve something, and then it's like, no, like I have to maintain this level. I have to keep, I have to keep doing more. For me, it was definitely a sense of like, okay, I won my first NCAA championship doing this kind of work. Now I have to do more to win another. I have to do more to win another, and it's never, it's never enough. And I think that's the problem with having these goals that are focused solely on 
getting a certain place, running a certain time, because it's, it's, if you're not okay mentally and physically, like it's never going to be enough to fill that. You're always looking for the next thing to kind of fill that hole. And ultimately at the end of the day, you have to be okay with yourself. Like, I mean, like winning an NCAA championship isn't going to like make you a happier person, I guess. Like, sure. Mm -hmm. It'll feel good for all of like three hours. And then it's like, okay, what do I do next to keep filling this hole? They're kind of like illusionary or like a treadmill of like another thing and more and more and more. You never actually get that satisfaction or fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. What is that like psycho? I feel like that's like my college psychology course is like the (laughs) hedonistic treadmill. treadmill. Yeah. 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 Treadmill. Sure. (laughs) Just that. And from like a, a support standpoint with like sponsors and things like that, do you feel that that pressure? Um, you know, we're talking about your support, obviously your family is pretty good at recognizing it's about you, but I feel like a lot of times sponsors, it's really just about how fast you can run. Okay. So I have to say like Saucony has been amazing to me over the last couple of years. And I think it was like, they signed me basically after my fifth year when nobody else was going to sign me. Um, they like, I had literally no other contract offers and when they called up, they're like, Hey, like, we're going to pay you. Like, basically like, it's not a glamorous, super big contract, but it's going to be enough for you to like live. And like, you're going to be able to train. And we're like, even if you don't race for the next, however many months, because I was mm-hmm. injured at that point, I wasn't mm-hmm. even running. And they're like, we're still going to support you. And it like being able to have that of like, okay, like we're going to support you for you to develop and hopefully something will come of it a couple of years from now. I don't think there is enough of that in the sport of like supporting developmental athletes. And even then when I got surgery, like I told him like, Hey guys, like I like, I'm literally not going to be able to run a step for the next six months. And they're like, you know what? That's fine with us. Like, Mm. cool. And so like being able to have that was huge, not feel like I had to like jump right back into racing again or like do, do anything that was going to get me hurt because I don't think a lot of athletes at this level have that. Um, especially with a lot of companies reductions, your contract gets cut. Um, I think Saucony incentivizes racing well, like there are contract bonuses for hitting times for achieving things, Mm -hmm. but it is a contract free of reduction. So it's like, Mm -hmm. even if I don't run a step for a year, they're going to like keep paying me a living wage and helping support me so that I can get back to doing what I love to do. That's so important. Yeah. And you're right. I think the, the, the whole point of reductions and this scare tactic it keeps a lot of runners from seeing their full potential and maybe they'll have a, an incredible, you know, one or two years. And then you see people really, really peel off, um, you know, pretty hard. A lot of times, I mean, some people are able to sustain that, but then, and then also like you were mentioning, it's, there's also this spiral of, you know, unhappy running and what, what, where you go to, to try to get more and more so that you are getting that approval I, and also being able to continue to live. Um, so yeah, well, kudos to, to Saucony. That's so, yeah. that's awesome. And I hope that whoever's listening um, from a brand and sponsorship standpoint can also recognize how important it is to support um, our athletes in their developmental stages and, you know, in the ebbs and flows of what happens d- during your career. Every exactly. year isn't going to be a, 
injury be a hot one. <laughs> injury comes with the territory, right? You're mm-hmm. an athlete. Like that injuries are part of that life. And for them to come in at a, a low point for you, I'm sure that that meant, felt, meant a lot to you, Molly. You know, mm-hmm. if you're like doubting yourself as a injured athlete, to have someone say, hey, we still see your greatness and we still want you. Like, what was that like to, for them just to still want, you know, support you then? It was like, uh, it was really cool. Like I, like being able to have, have that and like be able to be seen by a company of like, okay, you don't have to be a world beater right now. Like we, and I don't know if this is because they, they knew that kind of my event was going to be distance stuff. I think it might be different for a miler who's their, their peak is maybe a little bit younger of an age, but I think having that long-term view of like, okay, we want to sign someone now who might be great a couple years down the line, but they have to have the time to develop into that. I think that's really important. And that's what the sport needs because I think running and especially track is such a feast or famine type thing. There's a lot of money for people who are at the very, very top, but for people down below, it's kind of like everybody's fighting for scraps and the middle has been really hollowed out these like, contracts that aren't flashy but are supporting people to live and to train and to develop into the athletes that they can be like I I wasn't in I wasn't capable of making an Olympic team my first year as a pro Um, I needed the time to be able to train and develop and to to learn and Saucony gave me that opportunity and I think there's a lot of opportunity I think there could be even more really really great American women and men competing at the world level if we give them the time and the space mm. to develop into that it's mm. not ne- you, it's not just going to be the people who are number one coming out of college there are people who are maybe finishing like fifth through tenth right now at NCAAs who are someday going to be able to win an Olympic medal but mm. they need to have the time and the space to develop into that what yeah. a great example you are of all of that um I I wanted to ask you a question just, you know, we talked about performance bonuses, potentially, you know, incentivizing um, your contracts. What about with everything crazy going on right now with the pandemic? um, Like how, how is everyone taking that in terms of, you know, you've now made an Olympic team. There's probably an incentive on that. Obviously if there isn't go ahead and, you know, whatever, but then also Mm -hmm. rolling into the Olympics that was supposed to be hosted in July or in August, July through August. Um, you know, what are some feelings like about all of that? Obviously we know, you know, we're doing what we need to do to ensure the health of the world, but what some of your initial feelings and then, you know, where are you at right now? Yeah, I think initial gut reaction was definitely like sadness. Like I everybody like 2020 was hyped up to be such a big year. It's like everybody's hope, like you want to race at that on the world stage. And then when that's taken away, it's the same kind of morning that everybody who was supposed to run Boston or anybody who had race plans for any of the, the marathons or races this spring, it's like so much has been taken away right now. But like, I 100% fully agree with the decision of the IOC. There was no way the Olympics were going to be able to happen this summer. Um, just from a health and safety of the athletes to like just upholding what the Olympics is about, which is everybody having an equal chance to try and qualify all the nations being able to do it and being able to have spectators there. And they wouldn't have been able to have that this summer. Um, 
So it's like with that full knowledge, it's like, yeah, you can mope about it for a little bit, but then it's like, you have to move on and figure out like, okay, I now have a year and a half effectively to before the Olympics, what can I do in the next year and a half to be the most ready for the Olympics? And that's why I'm very grateful that like USATF and IOC made it clear that like we keep our spots on the team. There was some discussion about whether or not they would rerun the trials, which is a very stressful week, um, (laughs) a very negative week. Um, blocked quite a few people on Instagram with that one, but, um, there actually was, was discussion about that. Like there was meetings and stuff. Yeah. Oh, I, didn't yeah. I just thought it was like a rumor, but I was like, oh, no, no, they actually like, I had, I'd been contacted then by, um, some of my friends who like, uh, within like USATF or like, they're like, okay, so they're like discussing it at USATF. I'm like, wait, this is in discussion. But I think it ultimately, like, it would be way too expensive to try and rerun that. It's a, it comes down fair. to fair. Well, yeah. yeah. And I, I'd have to check this, but I think there's a precedent from like when they used to select um, the world championship marathoners, you could post a time that was almost two years old. I think their qualifying window. So it's mm-hmm. like, why would you claim that that's too, too much time? Yeah, I don't know. It's like, because there was so much discussion online of like, oh, if it's a year and a half from now, how are we going to know that these people are going to be race ready? And it's, I'm of the opinion, like, I mean, how like stuff can happen in the four months before this the Olympics. Like, I, like, say. It's, I yeah. guess my, yeah, it's, it's very silly. Like, I, uh, I, my argument has been like, okay, like, I am like, extremely inexperienced at this race I've only done one of them I'm 25 years old like maybe being able to say like okay like I know I'm on the team I now have a year and a half to prepare and get ready and hopefully run another one in the fall like maybe this is an opportunity Mm -hmm. for me to like be able to like prepare myself as best I can rather than having to focus on like okay now I have to re-prepare for another trials and do that. Now I can just like focus in totally on like, what can I do to get myself ready for next summer? Like whether that's, yeah, running another race, just getting in more training. Like I only had five months of consistent training under my belt before that marathon trials. Like I'd really kind of need to get some more consistent training, hopefully to like be the best that I can be when I show up on the line in Sapporo. So I'm trying to really look at this as an opportunity. Yeah, and not only that, like the criteria is you guys have a trials and it's the top three cross the line. It's not, you know, other countries have different criteria and they can shift that around or whatever, but your criteria is set. So for them to change that would just seem so, I mean, you could argue a million different ways. I'm glad that obviously they didn't change that on you, Molly, and what you're saying, you're making the most of it. Yeah. Do you have news about a fall marathon that you want to share? <laughs> I'm frankly just hoping the fall or happen. Or I'm hoping the fall marathons happen right mm-hmm. now. Um, it would definitely be one of the American majors, but yeah, we're kind of figuring timeline based right now. Um, but yeah, fingers crossed, everything is kind of settled out by then. But yeah, just right now, I feel like everything is so fluid. Um, yeah. Right now, I mean, the original plan had been to like try and run maybe like a track 10k at Peyton Jordan and then do like the 10k trials not necessarily to like make the team just to kind of get to do it because I've never gotten to run a track trials but um yeah obviously that's all like <laughs> that's all completely shot to hell right now so yeah it's just like 
trying to get in consistent training now. And then as we get closer to the fall and get an idea of what things are going to look like, we can maybe start to do a more official build up. Yeah. So you kind of just like doing this like little in between training or how are you managing that piece? Because I know all different athletes are, yeah, like we don't have a goal right now, like immediate goal. And what, how are you managing that like training wise? Yeah, truthfully, training right now is super low-key. I'm, like, just doing mileage, like, strides maybe once or twice a week. Like, I might do a fart like at the end of this week. But um, I see a lot of people right now who are like, yeah, I want to do virtual races and super hard workouts and, like, all this stuff. And I'm like, I just don't right now. Like, I, I need to take some time. I feel like this is a very good, like, forced, like, forced step back for me, like, mm-hmm. I kind of need that time to be able to like mentally and physically recharge. And I just, I don't feel motivated right now to do a virtual 10 K. Like it's, I, there, there is like slightly like a morning process of like losing an entire spring season. And I think right now, like I need to just be able to take a little bit of time to like, just mentally get myself back into the place where it's like, okay, like, a couple weeks from now, I'll start like really getting back into like workouts or stuff. But right now it's about like staying safe, staying healthy, and then kind of like getting my body back to where it needs to be so that I can be like mentally sharp when I build back up again. I love that. I'm taking that with me. Um, So the purpose of this podcast is to, you know, better help tell the stories of women athletes. Um, We don't, hear enough of all the parts of the stories from our women athletes. So we want to ask you, what part of your story do you feel like needs to better be told or, you know, isn't told as well as it should be? Hmm. Uh, I feel like there's so many, it's funny because there are like, I guess two different like stories that are going out. Like the, the one that like really like blew up after the trials was just like, Oh yeah. Plucky barista decides to like hop into a marathon and go for it. Like with not a whole lot of like content, like I was marathon. I didn't just like decide to try out this running thing. Um, so I think that was like the joke amongst like our friends was like plucky barista takes a two hour coffee break. And, qualifies for um, and so, and I think that story does a huge disservice to pro running in the U S like it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't give any sort of context to like the the training and like the sport as a whole that goes into doing something like this it's kind of just like glamorized it's like anyone can qualify um and so get your running I, shoes on friends yeah it's like I didn't just like forest gump this and like start <laughs> running the day before the race no how so many like, miles a week were you running Molly just like you get just on that to prove that point like how much how many miles a week are you kind of running to, to prepare for it in reality yeah, I mean like in the build-up it was between 100 and 120 miles a week so it's <laughs> like I was like <laughs> plucky barista runs to yeah. work and back home <laughs> yeah exactly like uh, never had run a step before I literally had in the on the flight back from Atlanta um the stewardesses they had heard like what had happened and so I was talking with them a little bit and they're like oh so did you like run before this I'm like yeah like I'm a pro runner like oh the article in the times that came out made it seem like you just like started doing this I'm like nope I've been running for literally <laughs> 
10 to 12 years at this point. It's a very legitimate profession, everyone. (laughs) All those conversations that you have to explain. And I I think that's part of the problem is that with our sport, because it's really only in the spotlight every four years, that people don't understand that it's like, we're, we're doing this 24 seven, like it's, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's our lives. And so I think on that front, like, I would like that story to respect the sport as a whole and respect that this isn't just like, obviously, like I love the attitude of like anyone can jump into running. It's something that everyone can do, but also respect how much work needs to go into it to get to this Mm -hmm. point. Like Mm -hmm. this isn't something that happened overnight. This is something that I've been working at for years and years and years. And Mm -hmm everybody who reaches this level has to be working at it for years. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people want it to be a very quick fix of like, Oh, I just started training and now I can achieve all of my goals. It's like, no, it's going to be, there's going to be ups and downs. It's going to take a long period of time. And especially with the marathon, because it is something that you need to be a little bit older and have that development in the sport to be able to do. I think being able to show, especially younger runners, it's okay if you're not great right away at stuff. Like it takes yeah. work, it takes time and just give yourself the time and the work to get to that point. I think that's what I would like to impress upon people who are seeing this and be like, if I'm not great in my first marathon, then it's not even worth it. And it's like, no, like this was like, sure. It was kind of a, like a funny fluke thing that this happened on my first marathon, but it's not like I just started doing this. No. It's like that saying, it takes a lifetime to become an overnight success. Right? <laughs> I think that's yeah, like that's the media are going to go is like that surface, you know, You're like yeah. come I'll tell you the reality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like there's a, a somebody told me like a funny joke or something like, yeah, like the I don't know if it's like an old thing or something that it's like the how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Like, yeah. How do you get to a concert at Carnegie Hall? You play violin a lot like with the (laughs) attitude like if you want to like get to these great places you need to like put in the work over years like how do you get to the olympic trials you run a lot (laughs) yeah you put in the work to get there and it's not always going to pan out but sometimes it all just clicks yeah you did for you that day (laughs) and was was there another part of your story that you wanted to talk about I like those two pieces. No, maybe. Yeah, I I guess like the second part because like so much has been like about the eating disorder stuff, about the like overcoming all of that, and I think some of the things that have frustrated me with with that whole story is the tendency for people to say like, okay, she she dealt with these things in college, and now she's completely over it, and now she made the Olympic team, and everything's great, and her life is perfect, and she never has to deal with it again, and. I have talked with people who are in the midst of eating disorders, who are past eating disorders. And it's hard because it's something that you're never fully over. Like I I still deal with these things. It's something that I have to continue to get to work on. And if about it, I slip back into it. Like I have relapsed on it. And I want people who hear that story to understand, like it's, it's okay. If like, if you go through treatment, if you deal with these things, and you're not 100% healed, you're never going to be fully healed from it. And I think being able to give people the understanding, like, okay, it's something you constantly work at, and it's okay to not be 100% okay all the time. Like, I'm certainly not. 
And mm-hmm. I think it can discourage people hearing that of like, why am I not fully fixed now after doing mm-hmm. all of this work? And just be like, no, like, that's okay. Like, this is a really hard thing that thousands and thousands of women deal with. And it's okay to not be quote unquote healed mm-hmm. at the end of it. Yeah. Very. Thank you for sharing that, Molly, because I think yeah, yeah, people you. want to hear this like happy ever after story and the reality of anyone who's struggling with an eating disorder and um, that it is a, it's an ongoing process. For you, didn't you have like the self-awareness that you feel like you know when you're struggling or are there telltale signs that, you know, that show up for you, behaviors or? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie, like after the trials and then with all of the, the stress of the coronavirus, this has actually been like a not super mentally great time for me. And that's when, like, for me, like my eating disorder was not like, not 100% like a body image thing. It's more related to my anxiety. It's a control mechanism for anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I don't have good ways of dealing with it, then my eating starts to suffer. And so part of that is like, making sure that I'm surrounded by people who know what I deal with and like that support network that was part of me like coming back to Wisconsin to be around family like I just straight up can't be alone in an apartment spiraling with my thoughts Mm. Um, and so it's like I'm better now at being able to recognize when I'm hitting that pinch point of like okay like this is going to be the break point now of like I'm either going to fall back into this or I can like reach out and get help and for me like getting help has always been like being able to admit that vulnerability and reach out and have other people support me through it. So I think like, yeah, like the, like I definitely like still deal with this kind of stuff and Mm -hmm. it's just being able to recognize, like I need to still continue to put in the work. It's never going to be like an end point of like, I'm Mm -hmm. over this. It's always going to be, how do I manage this? And so that I can be better. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a great point, Molly. I think this pandemic is probably triggering for a lot of people in regards to anxieties, depressions, um, eating disorders. I've heard that actually um, from a few different people. And so good to be aware of this. Good to comment on asking for help if you need it and trying to place yourself the best you can around those people. Um, You had a lot of great insights uh, in this interview. We're so glad we got to chat with you. We hope soon we can actually see you on the start line again. At least I will hopefully soon. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and yeah, huge thanks for keeping track with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, you guys. Congratulations, Molly. Thank Thank you, Molly. Keep track, keep track. Major shout-outs to What Cheer Writers Club, a nonprofit supporting Rhode Island's content creators and where Roshin and I record this podcast in Providence, and to Rudy Nakashima for our funky outro song. Thanks, guys. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit. 
the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.